Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world, with the MD, Dr. DJ Verrett. Greetings and welcome to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett, and this week we've had a series of interviews of researchers who've looked into the effects of private equity investments in healthcare. Today, we're joined by Dr. Joseph Francis, a practicing Mohs surgeon in Florida, who has looked into the effects of private equity investment in dermatology. We'll talk to Dr. Francis about his research right after this. Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. Today, I'm talking with Chris Hansen of Alliance Bank. And Chris, with mortgage interest rates so good, what should we talk about in refinancing? Yeah, DJ, thank you so much for having us. Given the historically low interest rate environment we're in today, it's certainly a great time for a homeowner, a business owner, a commercial real estate owner to revisit uh, their current interest rate structure on any transactions uh, they may have with their bank or mortgage company. Uh, We can assist on both sides of that, residential and commercial. Uh, We approach uh, all of our lending on a relationship basis. Uh, so we get to know our customers. We are definitely a long-term vision type of company. Uh, we've been 95 years in Texas, Texas only bank, and pleased to serve this Collin County market from my office as well as contiguous counties. And if physicians are interested in contacting you, what's the best way to get in touch? Office email address, C Hansen, C-H-A-N-S-E-N, at alliancebank.com. And for more information about Alliance Bank, check them out on the web at alliancebank.com. Welcome back to Ask Me MD, medical school for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett, and today we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Joseph Francis, a practicing Mohs surgeon in Florida, about his research into private equity involvement in dermatology practices. Doctor, thanks for joining us. Thank you, DJ. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background before we start talking about your research? Sure. Uh, Well, I was born in Queens uh, and um, raised in this rural area of Florida. Um, Most of my teen years, my family situation sort of changed. I didn't have health insurance. So I was part of this, you know, working poor gap where, you know, you made too much money to be on Medicaid, but, you know, not really enough to afford health insurance. So I think that really had a big impact on me. Um, there, I went to Duke for undergraduate school. Um, then after that, I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers as a management consultant, where sort of I explored my interest in, in programming. And you know, my main goal really was to just be financially independent. Um, afterwards, you know, after a few years of that, I went to medical school at Howard University in Washington, D.C. And I did my internship at Harbor UCLA, which are both sort of inner city hospitals. And... Um, a lot of my mentors were, I guess you'd say, patient advocates. Um, and, you know, that had a big impact on me. Also, you know, my, I did, uh, then I did a dermatology residency at Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, and then a fellowship with uh, Richard Bennett and Moe's Surgery in uh, Santa Monica, California. And, uh, you know, working with Dr. Bennett probably had the greatest effect on me personally and professionally, just in the sense of, you know, learning to, look at, you know, research topics uh, less from an ideological perspective and more of like a search for the truth. Um, so that's where I find myself today. 
So was medical school a second career for you or were you always focused on getting to medical school and just needed a path to get there? Uh, well, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, I wasn't like gung ho about it. I kind of just, you know, I, I kind of wanted to leave my options open because I knew that, you know, medical school is a significant expense and, I wasn't sort of financially ready to put myself into a, a position where, you know, I'd be sort of like locked up in it for another at least seven years without having an income or out without having my own being financially independent. So um, these were things sort of, you know, that were kind of ingrained in me all throughout undergraduate school and kind of sort of guided my decision making. But, you know, does it feel like a second career? Yeah. So when I was in medical school, I kind of felt like I had the perspective of, you know, working as a consultant. I knew what, uh, you know, working in the corporate world and traveling were like. So, I, you know, I didn't really take it for granted. I, you know, I studied a lot, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, kind of focused on being successful. So fast forward to today, uh, obviously, private practice, most surgeon, uh, but you also took an interest in doing research into the business of medicine. Tell us about what you're doing and, and how you kind of came to that as well. So uh, well, that goes back to, um, you know, my fellowship director, Dr. Bennett, who you know, it was around 2014. Um, I had a text message from him. I finished my fellowship in 2012. Um, 2014, I had a text message from Mrs. Joe. You know, they Medicare just released this data. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, we can take a look at, you know, the most surgeons in this data. And, um, you know, he had a couple of ideas. So, you know, we chatted and we realized that um, we, can, we can basically, what we could do was to take CPT codes used by dermatologists and try to sort of recreate the way that they practiced. And so we sort of tested that kind of just back and forth on the phone. And we said, you know what, I think we could actually do it. And that was kind of like, um, one big step that we took. Um, so we said, well, let's take the billing codes. And that's what the, you know, the CMS data release basically was. It was the first time that, you know, individual physicians were identified uh, in a data set that looked at exactly how they're billing and what CPT codes they're billing and the actual counts. So we said, well, why don't we just do a small scale project and look at, um, Mohs Surgery Fellowship Directors and looked to see how they're practicing Mohs Surgery. So we did that and we, um, we said, well, how do we present this? And I said, okay, well, let's do a histogram. So basically what we did was a, a, a basic histogram where um, the number of stages, average number of stages it would take for them to clear a tumor. And <clears throat> the average was about uh, 1.7 uh, with a standard deviation of 0.3. However, you could see some um, people who averaged three or four stages to take out a uh, skin cancer, uh, which was uh, kind of nuts. So I know, you know, you're familiar with most surgery DJ, so you can imagine, you know, somebody averaging three or four stages, that's pretty high. Um, yeah. It seems like just my feeling would be it's, it's one to two stages for most people. And that, that usually takes care of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like the average 1.7. Um, so we looked at fellowship directors and then I said, well, you know, I think I can, you know, process this entire data set and look at, you know, statistics for everyone, uh, which I was able to do after, you know, lots of sort of data wrangling and everything. And, you know, saw lots of interesting things there. Um, 
you know, there were, there was a big group of people that averaged one stage um, of most surgery, which which as you know, that's that's highly irregular averaging one stage. You know, um, if you're doing lots of cases, um, and you know, then again, you know, there's also these people that are about, you know, there's a group, there's a cohort of people that are, you know, three or four standard deviations above the mean. You know, as I got into it, I uh, I was sort of inspired by um, Jonathan Blum, who when he they released the data, he put up a statement saying, I'm just going to read it because I like it so much. He says, release of physician identifiable payment information will serve a significant public interest by increasing transparency of Medicare payments to physicians, which are governed by statutory requirements and shed light on Medicare fraud, waste and abuse. So I took, I kind of took that as a challenge and said, you know, I can, I can do this. You know, I can sort of develop my own metrics. I have access to the data. So I was like, okay, well, I'll take you up on that offer. (laughs) Well, and, and uh, when we were talking offline, it was really interesting to me that the knowledge base that you came with and the skill set you came with to actually do that analysis. Can you kind of share with our listeners how you just the nuts and bolts of how you did it? Sure. So, you know, whenever I'm thinking of a project, so I kind of start, I like to start with a very simple idea or a problem like, okay, let's say, you know, um, let's hear, like, listen to chatter. Someone says, well, there's a lot of people doing special stains on pathology specimens. And, you know, maybe um, there's, maybe there's something there. So um, there may be some labs um, that are, you know, sort of reflexively ordering special stains that are maybe unnecessary. So then I say, well, what can I, can I show, can I prove that? Or can I, can I investigate this idea? And so I, I'm pretty familiar with uh, sort of the data dictionaries of all the publicly available data sets and some of the ones that are not publicly available. So then I kind of delve into the, um, these billing practices, like, like, let's say, for example, how would you bill a special stand? So first there would probably have to be 88305 associated with it. So that's, you know, pathologic examination of tissue, the technical and professional component. And then, you know, there's an add-on code for special stain. So then, you know, you can sort of develop a metric, sort of like an equation to show, you know, um, what can you, like an equation that, you know, includes these billing codes, like how can you um, prove this or how can you develop, um, you know, sort of a, a histogram to sort of look at this and see how prevalent it is. And then I use a program called R um, and I write, you know, sort of some basic code that, you know, um, from my pseudo code when I was sort of planning it out and, you know, with R such a powerful tool and it's free. Um, you can, I remember watching people, you know, at meetings and stuff, you know, when this data first came out, they, they go to data.cms.gov and they try to open up the, you know, Excel spreadsheet that contains, you know, all this data. It's like nine gigabytes and their computers just like, you know, sit there for a moment, just, just can't be done. You know, you really need, you know, some uh, statistical program like R that has, you know, the memory management and, you know, the manipulation capabilities in order to do this. So um, I guess is that, I guess that answers your question. It does. I mean, it, it just kind of, it, it's very interesting to me that you bring together a skill set, both as a physician, knowing how to bill for it, 
the technical ability to use programming resources to actually analyze the data and the understanding of the analysis to come to a conclusion. It's, it's a skill set that I don't think many researchers normally have and would, would actually take multiple researchers in most situations to come to the same conclusions that you do. And I suspect you're able to come to those conclusions a lot faster than other people looking into the same data sets are. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there, but I mean, I'm hoping that there's more people like me, like the, the, you know, I consider myself generation X, you know, but I think, you know, the defining characteristic of millennials, they grew up with technology, but I guess, but I was, you know, kind of, I also grew up with technology. Like I was, you know, I was messing around with computers and programming, you know, when, when I was probably like maybe 10 or 11, but you know, that was just kind of like my hobby because, you know, I wasn't any good at sports, but, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm hoping that, you know, it, that, you know, the latest generation of physicians can, you know, kind of use these tools and, you know, maybe they have, you know, um, you know, patient advocacy backgrounds or, you know, they're interested in, you know, searching for, you know, these ideas and they, they can do this type of work. But, you know, as you said, right now it takes, teams of people to do it. And the problem with that is that, you know, things get lost in translation and um, there's nothing like, you know, I call it like waiting in the muck. So you, you create this, you know, you build a, you know, data set that kind of, you know, it gets, it takes a while, but part of the process is you, you create your own sort of custom data set where you can sort of just wade through it and you can kind of look to see what's going on. Um, kind of like, you know, when I go fishing, I kind of do the same thing, you know, kind of wading out there, trying to, trying to get a feel for what's happening in the water. Now you're going to, I got to do the same thing with the data. That's where you really get a lot of the insights from it. it just be careful wading in Florida here. You have a lot of alligators out that way. Oh yeah. We have Rio, you know, there's all kinds of things you could be exposed yeah. to. <laughs> At the top of the show, I teased, we talk about private equity. So you mentioned when you started delving into the data, you were looking at most academic, most surgeons, most fellowship surgeons, and, and how many procedures they're doing. When did you kind of shift that focus into looking at private equity involvement in dermatology? Well, so, so there's a, a guy that, uh, I don't remember how I met him, to be honest. His name's Silesh Kanda. He is, you know, very sort of, um, again, uh, kind of ideologically opposed to the idea of private equity. And he's done a lot of research, you know, um, showing, you know, he's really, you know, it's not really good for medicine. It's not really good for the physicians. It's not really good for the field of dermatology. And then, you know, there's a lot of people that agree with him, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, articles, you know, uh, Joshua Sharfstein, um, Gandhi and Sung, uh, all of these people that, you know, have this, you know, again, ideological views of how, you know, medicine should be practiced and everything like that. And so, you know, we, he, we decided to do uh, grand rounds together at the University of Florida about um, private equity because he felt that, you know, a lot of his um, residents were going off to work for private equity and then sort of later, you know, coming back and realizing like all these, you know, all these issues that, you know, maybe that maybe this should be part of their training, you know, like, let's take a look at, you know, dermatology business models and everything. So I said, well, you know, how about we join forces? Like I'll talk about, you know, what I know about data and you can discuss, you know, um, private equity and we can kind of fuse them together. So, you know, so that, I guess that's sort of how, 
you know, we started to work together and then I started to combine my, I'm starting to look through my outlier uh, analysis and say, well, you know, let's take a look at these outliers in detail. Like are any of them associated with private equity? And, you know, let's look at it sort of over time. And then I started to realize like, wow, you know, um, a lot of these elements, like, you know, you probably know people in your community, DJ, like you say, well, you know, I know how this guy practices. I've seen maybe some mutual patients and they're sort of like, like a bane on the, on the community, you know, like you end up having to, you know, fix their mistakes or deal with a lot of their issues, you know? Um, yes, I do know. Exactly. Every, every, every happens to every doctor right now. Let's say that like, you know, these practice patterns that are sort of embodied by these types of doctors, um, and this is what I consider, you know, sort of the outlier group, you know, they're, they're usually, you know, sort of these doctors in the community that, you know, everyone has to kind of make up for them, you know, and, you know, makes us look good. Right. <laughs> but um, now let's say, you know, private equity starts to um, get involved and buy them out. You know, basically what, what I realized that they were doing is like financially motivated physicians who are, you know, sort of exploiting the system at the expense of patient care. Like these are the kind of people that private equity was, was attracted to and they kind of want to take what they're doing and do it on a larger scale. Um, and that's evidenced on the data. So let's talk about the data itself. Were there, what did you find basically? Were there, were there some positive trends or negative trends or just kind of big picture? What did you see when you started looking at the data? Okay. Well, okay. So there's a few things. So with regards to the biopsy outliers, I mean, there's obvious trend that, you know, um, you know, these, these doctors, and, you know, to be honest, you know, I kind of was like, well, you know, how do you average 11 biopsies per patient, you know, or how do you average, you know, six or seven biopsies per patient uh, per year? I mean, and that's like a ridiculous number. So I kind of, you know, when I was practicing in West Palm Beach, you know, and a lot of them were down there in Palm Beach County. So I kind of went out of my way to meet these people and kind of understand them uh, or try to understand them. And a lot of them were, you know, they're like sociopaths, you know, like they, they have this, I, they believe that what they're doing is right. And, you know, you really can't convince them otherwise. So that was, that was one thing, you know, that they were sort of preferentially, you know, selling private equity being selected, you know, to join uh, private equity. So um, when, and let me interrupt you for a second. Sure, when okay. you say 11 biopsies per patient, you mean every patient they saw had on average 11 oh, okay. biopsies per year or? So, so, okay. So there's limitations on, you know, that statement. So this is, I guess I'll just say it fully. So averaging 11 biopsies per patient per year on fee-for-service Medicare, meaning that the average fee-for-service Medicare patient that walks in the door gets, you know, 11 biopsies. I know it's that, hard to take in, right? Yes, that's why I was. That yeah. that's why I you was. Think I misspoke. <laughs> yes, I really did because yeah. I, I, you know, I I do a lot of skin cancer reconstructions after most yeah. surgery, and we have some patients that are in every three or four months having things taken off, but the vast majority of patients may be in, you know, at most once a year, or or not even that frequently. So I so to think that every one of those patients would have gotten 11 biopsies per year is, is quite 
astounding and I think would be a significant outlier just from my gestalt of, of seeing those patients. Yeah. So what's, you know, what's, what's even more disheartening about that DJ is, you know, why was this person able to do this for so long without any repercussions? So where's the, you know, where's the government? Where's the, you know, data analysis that the government is doing? Where are the auditors? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. But what I do know is that if you can get, if you can go in and sort of get away with this for so long, you know, that kind of opens up an opportunity because, you know, um, from a business perspective, you know, if you can do this and without any repercussions, then, you know, that's a good business opportunity, you know, um, because, you know, you could create a, um, you know, a practice, a large corporate practice system that, you know, employs these sorts of things and, or like a self-referral based, you know, practice system that, you know, uh, that does this and, you know, it's totally fine because no one's looking. Now, now were you able to link those outliers in biopsies to private equity owned practices? Correct. So that was the patient. It's um, future considerations for dermatology in the 21st century um, paper that, you know, if you, if you want, I mean, it's, it was, you know, pulled by the journal because of pressure from, you know, private equity interests within, you know, the AAD or, you know, so, so we assume, but, um, and then there was a New York times article about it and the paper was put back, you know, uh, after being accepted, the paper was put back online. Um, but uh, that there's a, there's a table in there that I'm hoping somebody with a, with a good understanding of, you know, you know, CPT codes and, you know, the structure can, you know, can really look at it and analyze it and see, uh, you know, what I did and, you know, why it's important. But yeah, I mean, it, it does that. Um, the other thing that I found was, um, uh, and it's also in the paper, the same paper is um, there was a group of, um, so there's a private equity backed um, mobile dermatology group that, I mean, it was a mobile dermatology group with no dermatologists. It was just basically just um, physician extenders that were going around to nursing homes in the state of Michigan and were doing intralesional injections on um, patients in the nursing homes. And, you know, I think it was like a very high percentage of them had Alzheimer's disease. So it was like 70 to 80%. And intralesional injection, you know, is usually you know, steroids, you know, so there was really no, I mean, they were billing sort of hundreds of thousands of dollars of, you know, intralesional injections on these Alzheimer's patients. And they were sort of traveling around to the different ones. And, you know, it doesn't really make any sense to do this. Like, I mean, uh, so there's, there's a lot of little things like that in the data that you can see. Um, you just have to really, really focus in on it. And like, you know, um, that, you know, you can find that kind of stuff you can find, you know, once you start linking all these things together, you know, you can start to look at, well, what percentage of patients of that see this person have Alzheimer's and, you know, you know, sort everything. And you can, you can find little trends like this. I actually, that's an, that was sort of, you know, um, incidental thing. That wasn't something we found without even look, without even trying to look at it. How are you affiliated with private equity? Well, and so my next question is, how are you able to link the physicians with the with a private equity ownership? Obviously, the Medicare data simply gives you NPI number, physician name, and the procedure. It doesn't necessarily show that it's linked to a corporate entity. 
Okay. How, how are you able to make those connections? Good question. So one, you can do it manually, <laughs> which is, you know, you can do it. If you have a small, once you've, once you've created a, um, like a group of outliers, you can, you can associate them. You know, you can just look up the, look up the physician, find out where it works. There's another data set. It's called, um, so what I like to do is I like, like I alluded to before, I like to link lots of different data sets together. So another data set called physician compare where, you know, um, the, it's not, the key is not unique, but it's keyed by NPI number. You can make it unique and then you can link, you know, this physician compare data set with, um, with the, uh, you know, Medicare physician payment data set. Um, uh, and that physician compare data set will tell you where that person works and, you know, every office actually that they work at. And then how, what's the, what's the connection then between the office they work at and private equity? Cause I'm assuming it doesn't say KKR in the physician compare data set, right? Oh, so yeah. So that is sort of, that's where Dr. Conda comes in. So he has, you know, his data set that he created of, you know, all of all physicians and, you know, all physician groups and, you know, sort of what, you know, private equity group they work with. Yeah. So it and was we, actually, and we, and we keep it updated. So it was combining across, it sounds like three large data sets, including one that's that Dr. Conda set that's probably fairly uh, labor intensive and manual to, to create those relationships. Is that accurate? Well, yeah. I mean, you also have to understand that, you know, um, there aren't like, I think, you know, last time I checked, I think it was something like five to 10% of dermatology practices are owned by private equity. And that's as a whole, there are certain large markets, you know, where it's more than that. So, you know, um, some certain large metro areas, even in Florida, you know, they're, they can be dominated by, you know, private equity, at least in dermatology. So we talked kind of about some, some very interesting, but negative findings. Was there anything positive or, or striking that you saw when, when you looked at the data that you didn't expect? Yeah, I, well, I mean, 95% of people are honest, (laughs) you know, and I don't, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that dermatologists that work for private equity are dishonest. I don't think so. I think a a vast majority of them are, and I don't like to denigrate anyone that does work for private equity. I don't, I don't think that it's right to do that. And I, I think that, you know, you can criticize the, the system, but based on facts and, um, but, um, and there are definitely, you know, a lot of people in private practice, even in academics that, you know, practice dishonestly or are outliers. So I don't think that you can kind of pin it all on, you know, uh, corporations and private equity, but I think you can look at their, um, their, their sort of uh, structure and the way that they do things and who they're associating themselves with and draw conclusions from that. Looking ahead, do you have any plans for future research? It sounds like, like I said, you have a, a very unique skill set and ability. Is there anything that, that intrigues you at this point you're going to start looking at? Well, yeah, like I mentioned, I'd like to look at uh, pathology. Um, I'd like to sort of look at, I'd like to um, look more at trends, like 
what's happened since, you know, we have publicly available data, like what's happened since 2012. And, you know, I've found ways to sort of look at, um, look at data over the past, you know, six years and try to look at trends, like, you know, what happens after, you know, physician is acquired by private equity, like what ends up happening to that practice. Um, I think that's, that's an important thing to show. Um, if you're, I mean, if you're really gonna, you know, um, you know, so try to just sort of draw conclusions. I think that there's, there's lots of work that still needs to be done. Um, you know, just because, you know, just in, and not necessarily with private equity, but just looking at, looking for the truth that's in the data, there's so much, there's so much to be discovered there. I mean, um, when it's, you know, sort of framed the right way that can have, not just like, you know, lasting effects on, you know, possible reimbursement or, uh, but, could, you know, could have, you know, lots of different effects that on the way that we practice dermatology in the future. Fascinating stuff, Joe. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. We've been talking with Dr. Joseph Francis, a practicing Mohs surgeon in Florida, about his research into private equity investments in dermatology. You're listening to Ask Me MD, medical school, for the real world. I'm Dr. DJ Verrett. Until next time, make it an awesome week. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ask Me MD, Medical School for the Real World with Dr. DJ Verrett. If you have a question or an idea for a show, send us an email at questions at askmemdpodcast.com.